All right, in today's episode, we speak with Rob Lane, managing shareholder of Kirkring Barbario and Company, their regional accounting firm. Rob is a CPA by training and has sat on a number of nonprofit boards. He's certainly a pillar in our community. And we talk about the nuances of finance and a board member's responsibility and obligation. So I hope you enjoy this episode and learn a little bit more about nonprofit financials. Hey, everybody. Reed Corley here to let you know we will be releasing a new podcast every week. If you want to be the best board member you can be, visit our website, thecorleycompany.com, to sign up for our email list to be the first to know when a podcast drops. Well, welcome to the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. This is Michael Corley, and I'm excited to interview Rob Lane today. Rob Lane is managing shareholder for Kirking Barbario and Company. And Rob, tell the audience hello and tell us a little bit something about yourself and your organization. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's it's great to be part of uh, this this podcast. Um, our firm has is celebrating its 50th year here in Sarasota. And uh, we've expanded the Lakewood Ranch and, and Tampa as well. And really, we've been reflective of this community and, and grown with the community. And throughout that, uh, a, a big part of our industry focus has been not-for-profits. As we know, the we're blessed with the philanthropic community we have here. And uh, we have some very progressive nonprofits, and we have some very volunteer oriented that, that really, you know, don't have all the resources they might need. So it's been a pleasure to work with the nonprofits and appreciate what you all are doing uh, to, to bring more resources to these important organizations. Well, thank you, Rob. Now, you yourself, I know you have sat and are sitting on a number of nonprofit boards. Can you just share with the group that you, the broad spectrum of nonprofits you've served on in your role? Sure. Thank you. Um, again, we I personally believe in giving back to the community that you want to work in and live. And but it's also been a cornerstone of our firm. Um, I've been involved with uh, economic development. I've been involved with the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, there was a wonderful organization for a number of years called Scope. Uh, Sarasota County openly plans for excellence. Um, I've been on some startups that were challenges. Uh, the Institute for the Ages. Uh, was one that, quite honestly, we as a community uh, tried to uh, really be fairly progressive, and and we we're before our time, so that one didn't work. Um, currently on the Bay Park Conservancy and the United Way Board, uh, great organizations. Well, Kirking Barbaria certainly does allow you all to to serve uh, you and your your fellow. Um, Kirk and Barbario folks are just entrenched in the community, and we thank you for that. And I think it's probably one of the reasons y'all have done so well. So uh, for those listening, Kirk and Barbario and company, uh, go search it, and you'll see Rob's face on the website. So, so Rob, you just gave a spectrum of organizations which you've set on the boards of, and I know that's just a few of the ones that you have. What, what, what should a board member understand about the finances of the organization. What is the board member's role? Can you talk a little bit about that as as you've seen and you've participated? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think board members are fiduciaries and stewards of not only the mission of the organization, but, you know, the, the finances and the viability and the resources. Um, it's, you know, I think it's incumbent upon maybe the board chair or the uh, executive leadership to have a proper orientation of the organization 
And I think in doing that, um, it's it's imperative that that a board member understand how the organization is funded, um, what are the ongoing recurring resources that are available, and where are the challenges. And and so you know I think as you've talked about in prior podcasts, uh, it's it's incumbent upon someone who wants to sit on the board to understand all of those uh, resources and know what their role is. Um, certainly there are some people that maybe uh, won't be called upon to be as uh, deeply knowledgeable, but there are others that it's gonna be a critical part of what they give to the organization, their their expertise in this area. So um, again, I think it starts with the courting, should I be on this board? Do we want you on this board? To the orientation, to the rolling up of the sleeves and really ensuring that the organization is successful. You you mentioned something, the fiduciary obligation responsibility of a board member, I'm, and I'm glad you did. And so that, of course, lends itself to the finances of the organization as well. I've sat on a number of boards and people go, well, I, I really don't understand financials, so I'm going to defer. But, but I tell you, there is value in those people asking questions. Right. I mean, we shouldn't let board members be intimidated just because you don't, you know, you're not versed in financial statements. But by asking questions, you really do learn quite a bit about the board, excuse me, the organization itself and give others the opportunity to to think and opine. Yeah, I think um, it's it's critical that you be um, inquisitive and and question. Um, And, you know, very often people that are on boards have other life experiences that are going to uh, be a benefit to the organization because just because we don't do it this way now doesn't mean maybe we shouldn't consider it. So, um, you know, I think not-for-profit financial statements honestly can be quite complex. And so if, if someone is used to running a construction company or running a manufacturing company, they may not look at the same financial statements they're used to. So understanding why uh, certain things are done a certain way can allow that person, I think, to become more valuable to the organization. So again, um, you know, it, as you're choosing what to put on the agenda, it's, it, it, you have to give the appropriate amount of time to each uh, important area. And, and one of them should be the financials. So in your experience, because you worked with a lot of nonprofits, both as a board member, we know, but also your firm audits them and works and consults with nonprofits. Are there three, four, five, whatever it is, set of financial statements a nonprofit ought to produce on a regular basis? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, the most critical um, are, are your balance sheet and the statement of activities, which in a for-profit, that would be your profit and loss. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you're analyzing this year's activities to a budget. And you might also analyze this year's activity versus last year. And what you're looking for are um, positive and negative trends uh, that might jump out at you. Ensuring that you always know that that cash is being reconciled and you know how much resources you have in the way of cash. Um, You know, as we were talking earlier, um, you know, organizations of various sizes um, have different challenges. A startup has to just preserve and protect cash. It's it's not a, uh, a you don't have necessarily a recurring revenue stream yet for, that a more mature organization would have. I would say after that, um, 
you know, it, it depends on the type of organization. We've seen some organizations that a significant part of the revenue model is their investments. And so ensuring that you're you're tracking investments versus benchmarks is a critical thing. Some organizations even have investment committees that are different than the finance committee. Um, and then I think the other is um, key performance indicators or KPIs. You know, what what makes this organization tick and are we on plan as it relates to that? So as an example, it might be how many children served or how many meals uh, served or, um, you know, if we're if we're attempting to do counseling, how many how many people did we serve? And that not only helps with grant compliance, but it's our mission. It's the reason that we're we're here. Are we serving more people or less? And so it's something something to think of. One last area um, that is so important for a nonprofit is to ensure there's controls around donors' gifts. And so, you know, for an organization that receives an unrestricted gift, that's wonderful. But there are others that receive very restricted gifts, something for this program or this um, capital campaign or this location. And you want to always be able to demonstrate to your um, to your donors that we preserved your intentions. And and I think that's important. So some organizations will look at a kind of a supporting schedule of what restricted dollars do we have? And those are the things that come to mind. Well, that is, that's very helpful. And on a what regular basis should those financial statements be produced and shared with the board? Certainly um, on a monthly basis. I, I believe that organizations that are that have some troubles very often aren't doing things on a consistent and monthly basis. Um, so whether that gets um, you know, shared in a detailed report in that may not be necessary on a monthly basis, but certainly on a on a quarterly basis, there should be some discussion from the treasurer or the controller CFO. Uh, and particularly if there's very, very good things happening or very bad things happening. And this goes back to the fiduciary responsibility of the board that you, you really need to be aware of what is going on from a financial perspective. Rob, you mentioned the investment committee, and I was going to ask you about the finance or finance and the audit committee. So those are three financially related. You, know, you could say development might be you know, a fourth, but can, can you talk about when organizations should have those committees and how to use them? Sure, sure. Good question. We find that smaller organizations might have one committee and they do all of those things. As the organization grows, um, they're, they're potentially looking to bring on maybe some current or retired CPAs that used to do auditing, and they understand what a, an audit truly is, and therefore they know what to ask of uh, a, a fellow auditor. Um, and another way of looking at it, the audit process should be completely independent in, in a best-case scenario. And a finance committee should be collaborative working with the organization. So some some might view it as a little bit of a checks and balance, um, you know, between the audit committee and the finance committee. That 
we only see that in our largest organizations that we audit, I would say. Now, does every nonprofit have to have an audit? Good, good question. The state of Florida put a, um, I, I believe it's called the Charitable Solicitation License Act um, in place some years ago. And um, an organization that has less than $500,000 um, does not need to have an auditor review, but they certainly can. If they have between 500 and a million in contributions, uh, they have to have a review or an audit. And if it's over a million, they have to have an audit. So that's annual contributions, and it's an annual audit that they would need to have. That's correct. That's correct. And I think there's one other uh, thing that we see organizations um, sometimes not prepared for. If they're getting uh, federal dollars and those that goes over a $750,000 threshold, um, they have to have what's called a single audit, which is a compliance audit around the specific requirements of that contract. And quite frankly, it's a uh, it's a big leap from the operations of an organization, maybe the way they were conducting business, and then what they need to do when they have that that uh, single audit. So uh, be cautious when you celebrate getting that second grant that throws you over seven hundred fifty thousand because it it comes with a lot of a uh, lot of requirements. Well, that's very interesting. So the the difference between an audit and a review, and then what's the board's role in each? Um, well, the difference is um, an audit requires independent third-party verification of the numbers that are material to the financial statements. A review is basically analytical procedures performed by the uh, CPA and inquiries of management. So as an example, um, do you do you um, reconcile your bank accounts on a monthly basis? Yes. That's sufficient testing of, of that aspect of cash. If you're doing an audit, you're going to get a independently receive a copy, a confirmation of the balance, as well as the bank statement to look at. So you're, you're going outside of the organization. And when you give an opinion in a, or when you render your review report, you said, we have done uh, inquiries and analytical review and nothing came to our attention that said this is not in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. So it's called negative assurance. Um, it's more than a compilation, but it's far less than an audit. And uh, thank you for that. And I know people are going, oh my gosh, this is getting so detailed, but this is important because as a board member, you can't skirt this responsibility. And it's really important to understand difference between review and audit, what the expectations are, what your role is in that in the various committees. Because when you come out on the other side, you want to make sure that you, you, you're you compliant, you've done everything the proper way. And I will tell you, there are a lot of people that don't understand the proper way. And it's just out of ignorance, a lack of understanding. It's not intentionality. And you probably see that all the time, I'd imagine, with clients. Yeah, we, we do. And and there's, there's some people, quite honestly, that view the audit process as you know, something we need to do, and maybe we can get our friend to do one for free. And, and you know, one, you need to be independent. But I think going back to the fiduciary responsibility, 
I think you need to ensure that the audit firm you work with um, knows and understands the aspects of your industry and your organization. Someone that only does tax returns and agrees to do one audit a year for the good of its favorite organization is probably not the, the right decision. And just from my experience, and actually having worked with y'all, if you look at the audit as a learning opportunity, so I'm, if I have my nonprofit board member hat on, it's really enlightening, and the auditors can really help you improve the operations of the organization. Yes, they've certainly got a job to do, and that gives you great comfort that they're doing the audit, if you will. But through that process, you do learn opportunities to improve from an operational perspective. I, I, I would agree, and I think one of the best things that you can do as a board member is if you have um, strategic initiatives that you're going to be working on the coming year. It might be going to the cloud. It could be around data security. It could be about opening a new location. You know, making sure the auditors are aware of all that and share the questions you'd like to ask with them when you're completed the audit, because we can do an audit and um, not be able to answer a very intelligent question at the very end. But had we known that that was important to the organization, we could be thinking about it. We could be looking into it as we plan and, and perform the audit. So I think it's um, it's critical that the board members be engaged enough that they share where the organization is going. Um, and then I think also truly pushing for, are our systems adequate? Are we investing enough in the infrastructure of our organization? Um, and how is the quality of our, our um finance team you know are we do we have enough resources in this area and um you know we see organizations that sometimes feel like they should be a um i hate to use the word but that they should be a charity and and do everything on a shoestring and then there are organizations that are going to pay their people well they're going to have very good systems and very often they're very successful so just something to think of should, should there be interaction throughout the year between the audit firm and the organization, or is it a one-time-a-year one relationship? Um, good question. I, I would say it depends. Um, I know in our organization, we attend um, the quarterly audit committee meetings of this one organization, and they cover other areas of compliance and risk management and things like that. So they want us engaged and involved uh, throughout the year. And for many others, we have a, a planning meeting. Once we've uh, put together the audit plan, we conduct the audit, and then we report in at the end. So I would say that's more common, that what I the latter. Yeah, and I think noteworthy here, and for board members listening, the audit is more than financials. And when Rob talked about risk management, much broader cybersecurity, those are all things that an audit firm looks at and can report back on. And it's it's enlightening when you get those reports back. So, Rob, let's let's evolve, dovetail a little bit into the the tax returns and the taxing of nonprofits that that bear of a return called the 990 that is that is required. Are there what is the board's role in understanding that that 990 document? It certainly is a challenge, isn't it? Um, I, I think first and foremost, knowing that it's 
could be one of your most transparent documents that you're going to share via um, the 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 internet, because there are organizations like GuideStar that uh, put many many 990s um, up there for anyone to review. So it's important that um, more than just the accountant and the CPA firm be involved in it. And the reason for that on uh, in on page one. Part one, there's a discussion of the mission of the organization. So if that is evolved at all, I think it's important that that be updated consistently. There's a place um, on page two where you can uh, really talk about your accomplishments that, that the organization has. And, um, you know, again, you want to make sure that some of certainly the executive director or CEO is is scanning that to make sure it's telling the story you really want to to share with with people, um, and and then I think it's just a conversation with your tax preparer or audit firm. Um, you know, are there any of these check the box areas that that are um, not not desirable and things that we could work on? And it could be. You know, do we review the executive director's compensation with an independent source or something like that? Um, certainly, there's a lot of compensation information in there, uh, making sure that you know that that's accurate and complete. And um, there is what's called um, a Schedule O that is a blank sheet. And if there's any area of the return that you feel this really doesn't tell our story completely, or there's something we want to talk about, you have the ability to do that. And um, where I've seen that used sometimes, there's um, some deferred compensation that's required to be disclosed, and you have to disclose it on an annual basis. And then again, when the, the retirement or deferred comp is paid. So in the year of payment, it looks extremely large. And ensuring that that is uh, communicated not that everyone's going to get the Schedule O, but um, I think that's an important thing as well. So unlike our personal tax returns, which are supposed to be confidential, those of a nonprofit are available for those that want to search for it and find it, like Rob said. So use it as a strategic communications tool. Yes, the numbers are the numbers, but like he said, make sure you're telling your story. Use it as an opportunity to share because there are people like consultants like me who do pull that information just to understand the size of the organization but there are a number of people who do that as well. So that is public information and you can use it to your advantage. And I would tell you also, Michael, that um, many of our clients um, with us or on their own will, will look throughout the United States at similar organizations so that they can benchmark themselves and look for comparisons. Um, we know that there is some level of competition locally, uh, maybe for donors, uh, but if you think about um, a performing arts organization in Sarasota, one in Boston, one in Austin, Texas, you know, it, it, it can give you some nice comparable data. Oh, very good point. Rob, let me ask you this. You worked, again, number of nonprofits, your organization does. Are there best practice opportunities that you all regularly see that if I'm a board member, I need to be aware of? Hmm. Certainly, um, I think around the, the budgeting process, um, some organizations really excel at their budgeting process. It's not a mystical financial project. It's something that really 
um, shares the mission, goals, and intentions of the organization, not only with the board and through the board, but to the program managers themselves. Um, many, many people gravitate to a not-for-profit, not because they love the financial aspects of something. So, but you empower them when they they truly know what resources they have available. Um, you you let them be part of the execution of not only the budget but your your plan for the year. So I would I would say watching the budget process is is certainly been one of them. Um, the other thing we're seeing more and more is organizations um, looking at their investing, and we're not investment uh, experts by any stretch, but many of them are attempting to have a less, a more passive uh, investment strategy where they're using very, very low cost funds and they're reducing their uh, recurring annual costs. Um, I saw one recently that went from 57 basis points down to almost five. And so when you think of that recurring um, fee, that's pretty significant. And, and is that something that would come through the investment committee? Typically, it would, yeah. A larger size organization. Yeah, and that leads into to a question that I had re regarding reserves. When, when, you, when you all counsel nonprofits, is there a, a certain amount of reserves you encourage those to have? You know, that's that's a great question, one that's often asked. And I would have said, you know, back in, you know, five years ago, you'd kind of get a glazed over look when you'd say, you know, you need to have this type of reserve around. And then we had the pandemic and everybody had to go home. Um, and, and all of a sudden, some organizations, um, you know, you think of a performing arts organization, they just stopped. And so they they were... Many were in fine shape because they they have uh, a large amount of reserves. We would say normally that uh, six months is is a ideal. Uh, three to six months is is uh, I believe what the federal um, funding agencies want to see if they're going to fund you. Um, I would add, you know, when you look at what we just all went through with Hurricane Ian. Uh, you know, you, you just never know how your your uh, business is going to be disrupted. So having that is significant. And when we're talking reserves, we're talking operating reserves to keep the lights on, to keep paying people for X period of time. If And if you have a, a certain th uh, amount of money above those reserves, is that when you would start considering some type of investment and maybe even an endowment? Yes, yes. And, and the... Um, an endowment from a donor is permanently restricted, but many boards create, uh, you know, a board designated endowment. And just not to go too deep into that, that is basically showing the intention of the board. But if we had a crisis, they could change that. You can't change a donor uh, restricted endowment or permanently restricted. Okay. And, and is there a certain amount of money you should have before? before you start considering an endowment? Um, you know, I, I was, uh, I would say certainly $2 million and, and up. Uh, some of the larger um, financial houses, they have their own minimums um, and some of them might be five to 10 million, uh, but certainly you can find financial advisors to assist you uh, with, 
2 million and, and up. Okay, very good. So for those of you listening, you're currently with a small organization. It does happen. Dreams do come true. You can raise enough money down the road as you get to a substantial size to have an endowment. That That is not unusual. And it, it does change the way you approach your practices, practices, policies, and procedures. But that's a good thing. Yes. Rob, kind of a, a bonus question. You brought this up a few minutes ago, and it's something I've been intrigued by, and that's deferred comp in the nonprofit space and as a tool to to retain, to engage. Can you just talk at a, a broad level about how in, uh, deferred comp works in nonprofit and, and how it might be used? Sure. Um, you know, I think progressive organizations, as they grow, they want to attract the best talent that they can. And, you know, people that could be working in the for-profit sector um, might be attracted to the not-for-profit sector. But in order to, um, you know, one needs to be competitive. And so what some organizations are doing, um, there, there are what are called 457 plans. And these plans basically allow you to set aside compensation that is going to be vested over a period of time. So if the CEO stays for five years, there, there could be an incremental twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars a year uh, that that person could earn. And um, it's it's a bit of pay for performance. and um, we're seeing we're beginning to see more and more of those. I appreciate you saying that because I, I don't think it's something that most people are aware of. And for board members, you've got a good CEO. You want to retain him or her compensation. We all think, well, it's just straight W-2 compensation, but there there are opportunities similar to in the for-profit sector. Obviously, there's no such thing as equity, but the deferred comp can play a role and encourage you to, to research that and, and think through that and discuss it with your fellow board members. Great point. Yes. So, Rob, as, as we think and we come to, to wrapping up this this interview and you think about the role of the board, financials in particular, is there anything else you'd like to share, any guidance you'd like to give to board members? Well, I think one of the um, one of the things as I reflect on some of the boards I've been on and as I've watched organizations, um, to be careful that just because we have a uh, a break even, profit and loss statement doesn't necessarily mean that we're succeeding. And what I mean by that is if if revenue has fallen short and the executive director or CEO has not hired the two people that the organization really needs, the, the P&L could be balanced, but we're not achieving our strategic mission. So truly understanding that we need to roll up our sleeves from a fundraising perspective or an introduction standpoint, um, and, and make sure we, we get the top line budget as well as the bottom line budget. I, I certainly think that's something that is um, uh, very critical couple of other things I guess I would say is um, knowing how best to use, uh, not use, but engage your board members. Um, and, and to me, some of the um, retired C-level executives that I've worked with in this, in this community, um, some are so uh, outstanding as board members because they, they know how to navigate and, and uh, not necessarily say, well, you need to do it the way we did it at 
this large publicly traded company, but they know how to do things like strategic planning, and they know how to do things like uh, maybe personnel reviews in a way and goal setting. So, you know, finding a way to let these great board members understand your organization in such a way that they can share what they've done to be successful with your organization. Um, I've been on boards or I've watched boards that have people that are just so talented and they've, they've elevated the organization. So uh, I certainly think that's very, very, uh, very, very important. I think it's a, and you touch on the leadership role of a board members, and you're absolutely right. We recently released a podcast that that I share my thoughts. I think it's the best leadership development experience there is. And so, whether you're that retired executive and you're able to deploy the, you know, all the acumen you've learned, or you're the younger person starting in the career, there, there's just an opportunity to serve. And a wise CEO will engage those board members and allow them to to help support the organization. Rob Lane, I, I appreciate your time today. This is such an important topic. And it, it just, every time I, I do a board retreat, when I facilitate those and I hear somebody say, well, I don't really understand financials and kind of dismiss it. I go, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. And you may not understand them, but you certainly got an obligation to be inquisitive and ask those questions. And I guarantee if you're thinking that question, somebody else is thinking that question as well. So Rob, I really appreciate it. Any, any parting comments before we, we conclude? Well, Michael, uh, thank you again for inviting me to, to do this. Um, and thank you for what you're doing for the not-for-profit community. I think as we can help organizations become stronger, uh, it, it just helps the community. So uh, again, thank you for all you're doing. Rob Lane, ladies and gentlemen, the managing shareholder for Kirkring Barbario and Company. He can be found on the web and please reach out to him. He's a, a wealth of knowledge and we appreciate it, Rob, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Michael. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that was a great interview with Rob Lane. And now our segment called Recapping with Reed. And what does a young person take out of our conversation? So Reed, Rob Lane, managing director for Kirking Barbario. He sat on a number of nonprofit boards, a lot of wisdom and from a financial perspective, among other things. So what are your takeaways? So my first takeaway from our talk with Rob Lane is to know how to best engage your board members. Each one has a unique skill and expertise. So set yourself up for success by having them help you with what they are best at. Ah, very good. You're exactly right. Everybody's a little bit different. What's your second point? My second point is that the 990 is one of the most transparent documents that you will share with the public. And it's important to have more than just the accountant and the CPA firm be involved in the creation of the 990. I know you and I have both looked at a bunch of 990s before, and it is true that it is extremely transparent. You can get almost any pertinent information about an organization that you want to from the 990. So be sure that more than just the accountant and CPA firm are involved in that the creation of that document so it reflects your organization accurately and more than just the finance aspect. Absolutely. You're right. It's so wise to understand that and know that. And what's your third point? My third and final point is to ensure you have controls around restricted gifts. You want to be able to show your donors that you can preserve their intentions. Nobody wants to donate money to an organization who does something differently with the money that you donated than what it was intended for. Right. Big, big discussion always on donor intent and maintaining and honoring the, that intention that the donor 
had when he or she gave you the, the money. It's very, very important. If you're not careful, those funds can be perceived as fungible and you don't want that to happen. And that's the board's responsibility to ensure the organization is compliant. So there you go, three bullet points from Reed. And our segment, Recapping with Reed.